Hello, friends, and welcome to another Robcast. And this one, I'm telling you, kids, fasten your seatbelts because Jeremy Courtney is on the Robcast today, and you live in Iraq. I live in Let's Iraq. Let's start there. Yep. How long have you lived in Iraq? This is going on the tenth year. And so the the birth of ISIS, uh, the American military presence leaving, you've had a front row seat to all this. Yeah, we arrived in the middle of the last war when the Sunni-Shia civil war was really at its height. And why did you go? Let's start there. Why did you go to Iraq? Well, we were living uh, nearby in a neighboring country in Turkey and watching the headlines just blow up about this this massive debacle that we were witnessing in terms of the, the overthrow of Saddam Hussein and the American occupation and the whole allied project in Iraq, the coalition project in Iraq. And it was just, we were too close. We were too nearby at that point to continue to sit by and do nothing. And we just started feeling something rise up in our bones that maybe we could be a part of doing something good, something different, alternative in Iraq, which was admittedly an extremely naive thing to think. But but it worked, and we, we ended up daring to kind of move in at that time, and we were off to the races. You moved in, where did you move in Iraq? Uh, so my first couple of trips were to a contested territory in a city called Kirkuk. It's a like kind of the Jerusalem of Iraq. The Kurds claim it's theirs, the Arabs claim it's theirs, the Turkmen claim it's theirs. Saddam Hussein, it, it, incidentally, it's on about 7% of the world's oil reserves reported, reportedly, and so... Saddam Hussein had embarked on this effort to destroy Kurdish lands, Kurdish homes, Kurdish gravestones, and incentivized Arabs to move into the area. And Because you want to erode Kurdish identity because everything's tribal. Kurdishness, yeah. And, and so, your tribe gets more power when you can diminish the belonging and ties and bonds of another tribe. And if there were ever to be a referendum or an actual vote to take place on what would happen to the future of this land, then whichever ethnicity has more names on the register, headstones in the graveyards, yeah, married couples of one ethnicity or another. So Saddam encouraged Arab men to move in and marry Kurdish women because then... It, when you give birth, the progeny would take on the identity of the, the male head of house. So that child would then be considered an Arab. And, you know, if you played that out long enough, then the Arab the Arabization of that part of the country would be in full swing. Now, I'm actually not saying that Saddam and the Arabs struck first. That's actually very debatable. Uh, mm -hmm. It may have been that the Kurds moved in somehow on top of Arab lands before them. And so this is where the tit-for-tat debate kind of okay, goes. Okay, we're three minutes and two seconds in, and you have just picked one focus spot in the Middle East. And I'm already like, what the? Mm -hmm. Whoa. Uh, and that's debatable, and that's... Mm -hmm. it's, it's already hard to parse out. And so to fast forward, I mean, to skip over, you know... Uh, decades and fast forward to current rhetoric real fast in American politics where the Kurds are kind of this white hat good guy the only friends we have in the region this great democratic force good moderate Muslims um, it's not that it's not that simple because when the US overthrew Saddam then the Kurds embarked on their own Kurdification process and so they took all these otherwise innocent Arab families who had moved into Kirkuk 
and then did the exact same to them. They ousted them from their homes. They raised their homes to the ground. They, oh, my word. The, and, and so we've been going back and forth in this, this kind of uh, ethnic cleansing, genocidal type uh, project between different groups in Iraq. And, and, you know, these same things take place in Israel, Palestine, and Lebanon, and Turkey. Okay, so let's just, let's just up front for the record. When you hear American presidential candidates talking about the region, are you like, you have no idea what you're talking about? I typically don't turn on a debate unless I have a good supply of things to throw at the TV <laughs> at near, you know, nearby. Because you're, you've been there in the midst of it. Mm-hmm. And so what was the nature of the work when you first moved there? Yeah, so we moved in. You raised um, support? How do you pay we the We did okay. initially. Our, we were really blessed to have some friends and family that wanted to and you take said, that journey with us. And you said there's this work that needs to be done. So, will you all support us? We're going to move to Iraq. Did you have kids? To help, we did. Well, our daughter was one, and we immediately got pregnant. And Jessica is your wife? Jessica is my wife. And you have, you had a, you moved to Iraq with a one-year-old pregnant with a... With a one-year-old baby girl, and then immediately got pregnant with our son. Yeah. The, and how old were you at that point? Oh, goodness. Mid-20s, something. Uh, 25, 26... And, and the work you were doing at first. Yeah, so the, the initial pitch, the initial vision that we had become aware of was about war widows, widows who had, um, whose husbands and families had been killed at, at the hands of conflict and violence. And so... U.S.? Um, we got into that, but initially it was more the, the previous conflicts between Kurds and Arabs, Saddam okay. and yeah. Kurdish forces and things like that. And... Moved in, uh, I think great intentions, met up with a community of people who had already been there doing some of the work, but it just never really had wings. It never really took off, and we didn't move our family into such a difficult place to live, to kind of sit around and, and do nothing. And so we were, I was pretty disenchanted, disillusioned early on that, that we weren't doing more to help more people in more difficult places. And one day I'm sitting in a hotel, kind of minding my own business, working on a laptop, preparing some high flutin report or proposal to get more money to help more people. <laughs> and my whole world just starts coming undone because this chai guy there in the hotel saunters up to the table. We've been, you know, getting to know each other some over the last days and weeks that I'd been coming into his cafe. And he sets down the cup of tea on the table and kind of hovers over my shoulder a little too long. It was a little awkward. And he kind of gets up the nerve to say, Hey, Mr. Jeremy, you've been coming into my cafe for a while now. Can I ask you a favor? And I said, yeah, man, go ahead. And he says, well, I have a cousin and his daughter, he's like our age, 20-something-year-old guy, and his daughter, she's, you know, like six years old now, but she was born with this huge hole in her heart. And after all these decades of war, Saddam's dictatorship, UN sanctions against our country, Al-Qaeda, all this stuff, like all the doctors have left and the hospitals have been destroyed and she's six and she's dying and there's not a doctor or a hospital left in the whole country that can save her life. You're an American. You've clearly come here to help us. Can you, can you do something to save my cousin's life? And it wasn't in my job description. Like I had come to help these kinds of kids not those kinds of kids. I had come to help these kinds of families, not those kinds of families. I felt somewhat equipped in my lane over on this side to help people, but I felt completely out of my element to do what he was asking me to do. 
And so I just kind of held him at arm's length and said, man, I'm not, I'm not your guy. I don't know anything about that. I'm, I'm going to fail. I don't have any connections. And he was like, you're an American. You've got more connections than you realize. You've got more power than you realize. You've got more privilege than you realize. I promise you can do more for my cousin than I can. Just try. Like, don't worry about if you fail. Oh, Think about what, what, what would happen if you succeeded. And a couple of days later, I agreed to meet with his cousin, the dad of this little girl. And so I'm back in my same seat at the cafe. We're safely ensconced behind these like 14 foot high concrete blast walls, go through security to get in. And I'm there at my seat waiting for him to show up. And he comes through the double doors. And as he rounds the corner, he's like playing unfair, playing dirty because he brings his little girl to the meeting with him. And before they get to my table, I'm a goner. And so he sits down and pulls out this really wrinkled, tattered piece of paper. It's her medical report. And you can tell it's the kind of thing that he's pulled out time and time again for anyone who would pay attention. He stood in the rain on the corner and pulled it in and out of his pocket, begging people for money. He's gone door to door and knocked. And I look at this report and I've only been in the country, you know, some few weeks at that point. So I can't read the Arabic writing from those doctors that he'd seen. I can't read the Kurdish writing from those doctors that he's seen. But in big block English Latin letters at the bottom, it says whole and heart. And I don't know, it was just served up on a platter for me. It was so simple. Whatever this complex heart problem was, it was really simplified for me. And it seemed like maybe she just needed her hole to be patched up or something like simple plumbing. And so I agreed to take the report, call a few friends, b- believing I would fail miserably. You're in your mid-20s. You're a white, bald guy in a button-down in Iraq. And you say to this guy, I'm going to try to help your daughter. (laughs) And I promised him I would fail because I was really tired of seeing American do-gooders like me come in and promise the moon, promise some community that we were going to transform something. We were going to make an investment in your community. We're going to bring democracy. We're going to bring peace. I didn't want to give one more set of failed promises. And so I promised him, I will fail you, but I will try. And like the second phone call I made, The person on the other end of the line goes, oh, yeah, we know all about that. We'll help you. Just bring it on over. And that unleashed this this just something beautiful in the world where we help this one little girl. And word must have made it back to her doctor. And word must have made it back to their other cousin who had some heart defect. And word made it across the street to the other neighbor whose kid had a heart defect. And people just started coming out of the woodwork. Because suddenly this, this community of people for whom there was no hope at all in the middle of this conflict, now suddenly someone's arrived on the scene who's stupid enough to think that something can be done about it. And we start sending these kids to these life-saving heart surgeries, and it, it's transformed our lives as much as it's transformed the thousands of them that we've been able to help. And who, there are there, like your neighbors, there aren't other Americans with young kids wherever in your neighborhood. Uh, in, our, are? in our city, we had some other American friends. Yeah, who had young kids. Who were making a go of it in Iraq. Yeah, doing various things. Um, you know, obviously conflict brings out contractors and aid worker oh, okay. types. Yep. Um, but there were, there were people seeking to, to start businesses as well and contribute to society through, through business efforts. There's oil and gas people always hanging around places like that. Um, 
And then when do you first hear about ISIS? Yeah, so we've, I mean, ISIS has been a reality in our lives and the lives of our friends for much, much longer than the U.S. has been talking about it. I mean, ISIS is really Al-Qaeda 2.0 in many ways. So, so Al-Qaeda in Iraq certainly has been a, a part of our life for for the entire time that we've been and in like Iraq. And like known Al-Qaeda operatives in your neighborhood that you see driving around like how does it how does it manifest itself in everyday life in Iraq I wouldn't say known in our neighborhood but we have had cells uh, al-qaeda and isis cells captured in our neighborhood we've had bomb plots and things like that disrupted um, we've had people that might be more adequately or rightly characterized as sympathizers mm-hmm. um, maybe maybe troublemakers in the vein of an ISIS or an Al-Qaeda, but not fully somehow in the system. Yeah, activated or whatever. Yeah. So the first, so ISIS begins as, oh, that's Al-Qaeda 2.0. They're better on Twitter or whatever it is. And then what happens? Yeah, so so this heart surgery work um, ended up taking us all over the country. Uh, what started in one little hotel with one little girl ended up catching the attention of First Lady vice president, governors all across the country, and then soon international media, Al Jazeera and CNN and things like this. And it it expanded our scope of influence and capacity to respond all across Iraq. And so we ended up being the first team to ever go into Fallujah without guns, the first Americans to ever show up in Fallujah without guns. Um, What was that? You just drove in. I went in in a taxi in the middle of the night. Yeah. You went in in a taxi in the middle of the night into Fallujah with no guards to, and no guns. To kind of scope out the situation and because they had... So one of the things that I've kind of glossed over here is the claims of Iraqis that this this massive spike in birth defects across the country is a result of two or three main things. One, Saddam's usage of chemical weapons against his own people. Mm. This has created a massive genetic permutation in the population that has led to years and years of birth defects, especially among those who were exposed to sulfur mustard gas. Which he did on numerous occasions. Yes. Yeah. Whoa. Um, Then coming on the heels of that, after Saddam invaded Kuwait, uh, the UN imposed the most violent sanctions regime ever imposed on a country, blockaded food, all kinds of dual-use products. So anything that could be said, Saddam's military might make use of this, therefore it cannot enter the country, was blocked. Now, a, a military is nothing but a microcosm of greater society. So so anything really was on the table, eggs and baby powder and all oh, this. Oh, got it, of- got it. <laughs> so you're like, oh, you can make a bomb out of that. You're like, no, you just use it to wash clothes. But that became the criteria with which you can't let that into Iraq. Yep. So everyday people are unable to get the most basic stuff. Screwdrivers, wrenches, tires. And, the, and it was very strategic. The desire of the UN led by the United States was to cause Saddam's military to cannibalize itself and cannibalize greater Iraqi society. So, so when you can't, when you, can't uh, you know, fix your military ambulance then you cannibalize a civilian ambulance. And when you can't fix a military water pump, then you cannibalize the city water pump, and so on and so forth, until everything gets so degraded that you're a more vulnerable target, which 
was fully realized in 2003 when we finally invaded. We had just basic infrastructure, fire trucks, basic infrastructure is is gone. And and the the fallout or the upshot of it all was what um, some U.S. officials and international officials called an infanticide. That what we had embarked on in Iraq was nothing short of an infanticide, because we had strategically sanctioned and put pressure on the very points of things that would cause the most vulnerable, knowingly cause the most vulnerable to suffer and not the most powerful, i.e. the regime. And so... So when a nation does an embargo on another nation, when the U.S. leads an embargo against Iraq, it doesn't actually make life... It goes right for kids, not the people in power. Yeah, the powerful people are always connected enough to figure out ways around it. Now, there are more and less violent ways of doing sanctions and embargoes. Um, this was a very sweeping, extremely violent sanctions regime. And so it caught everyone up in its net. But those with the most power and the most connection and that they were able to survive the longest, those who were the most vulnerable, those in the womb and those newly born and things like that were, were the first to go. And so this, in addition to those who, who properly died in the sanctions regime, uh, we have every reason to extrapolate that many, many children were born malnourished. And in utero, women were denied B vitamins and, and other essential nutrients. And so these children were born in a, in a malnourished, deficient state. They were born with neural tube defects, born with spina bifida, cerebral palsy, congenital heart defects, hearing problems, respiratory problems. And then, on top of that, the U.S. introduces a new weapon that's never been seen before uh, on that scale called depleted uranium. And people in the environs in which it was used start saying a couple of months and years into its usage, we've never seen the monstrosities in our children that we're seeing right now. Children born with brains outside their head, um, cyclops eyes, more egregious cases of neural tube defects and congenital heart defects and cancers and all these kinds of things. And then with the 2003 invasion, that was really just amped up even more. And Fallujah became one of the main ground zeros for that. So this country that's already devastated by sanctions and people are using the word infanticide with a straight face, then gets invaded by the most powerful military force the world's ever seen. Yeah, and, and Iraqis have been pleading with the international community, you know, essentially keep bombing us, fine, but <laughs> but use more humane weapons. Use use weapons that don't create a geneticide on top of everything else. Oh. Because, so here's the claim. Do people, like, I, I'm like, it's just boiling inside right now. I assume that you just give people a tiny piece of the story and people just must go crazy this is just complete madness it is how did you i mean to imagine an iraqi saying keep bombing us just use a substance that doesn't have radioactive properties and the chemical toxicity that depleted uranium the waste of the uranium enrichment process has use use some other big weapon but the, the, the party line, I guess, as I understand it from reading and military friends, is that this depleted uranium weapon was so profoundly effective in, in piercing through armor and piercing through bunkers that it, it couldn't be abandoned. It was, it was too effective. 
casualties and fallout be damned. Um, now, do you have a medical? Do you have any medical training background? No. So you're just learning about all this on the fly. And there's just more and more and more people who need help. And you are in a place to connect these Iraqis with these medical issues with resources and medical care. Yeah. And, and you're driving all around. You're in Fallujah. You're crossing into the city in the middle of the night. Are you like a calm? Are you nervous? What's your like temperament are you just naturally fearless no not at all i mean <laughs> you know that's 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 the kind of thing this whole idea of fear and bravery is, mm-hmm. is certainly on a spectrum yes um but but i was terrified i mean fallujah was the most storied the most absolutely the most that's what they harrowing. hung the u.s soldiers in the town square right mm-hmm. yeah, Killed they them were and hung them they were private contractors yeah, private, yeah. blackwater contractors and you go in there to see what the needs are and how you can help? Now, to be fair, I mean, this was a couple of years on. Mm-hmm. Um, things had, had calmed down, but I think, in fact, a lot of what had happened, as would come to be apparent later when ISIS really fully manifests itself, is that some of these ideas had been driven underground. So you might have said at the time that we went in that, Fallujah was somehow liberated from Al-Qaeda. I mean, um, it was called the bomb factory because Al-Qaeda had so massively holed up there and created these underground tunnel networks and created all these suicide bombing vests and and radicalized so many people and then sent deployed them out from Fallujah to go into other places of Iraq and actually wreak havoc. That had been tamped down significantly by U.S., forces and U.S. troops and the surge that, that took place in 2006 when we arrived, uh, after we arrived. And, and so it was, it was more calm, a little more normative, but what I was fairly convinced of and what all my Arab and Muslim friends said was that Al-Qaeda was still very strong in Fallujah. They had just gone underground. And so when we showed up with a, an amazing medical team who, I mean, they, they were just amazing heroes. I lived in Iraq. So I knew the lay of the land a little bit better, but as an outsider to just dare to come in on someone else's word that you probably wouldn't be captured and beheaded. You'll probably be able to leave here alive. Probably. Those, those people are the heroes. They were amazing. And, and they came in and opened their, you know, the clinic at the hospital, sure, but really more than anything, they opened their hearts and their lives to these Fallujah babies and their families. And I always have believed our, our core message and our core conviction has always been that our real service has not been primarily the, the, the provision of health care or the things that we're doing now in terms of microeconomic development and clean water and that kind of stuff. But the, the primary service we have is this idea of loving across enemy lines. That's, that's the revolutionary idea. Not, not that you would show up and merely provide humanitarian services in a place like Iraq, but that you would let love of the other, love of the enemy drive even to the hardest places like a Fallujah. And so that's what we're trying to really inspire and instill in the, the people of Iraq is that this is, this is for you too. This message that you could dare to cross your enemy lines as well. And indeed they have. I mean, they've loved us. They've welcomed us in. They've, they've let us come into their homes when we were the enemy. They've dared to, to thumb their nose at Al-Qaeda and say, 
damn straight we're going to have Americans in our home because they're they're making the world new again. At least these Americans are. So how do they think about you are? Do they think? Oh, you're a good. I mean, do, what is the word on the street about America? Yeah, obviously they have you. It's definitely a bittersweet. Are you the deviation? And then there's the Americans, the sanctions, and the or are, no Americans are liberators, and a couple of like how do they think about? Um, and I realize it's asking like what do people in America think about politics? Yeah, you, you could get anything. I mean, I you know I certainly want to be careful to not yeah take my I understand my particular and somehow like universalize it. Yeah, right, but, right. But in our experience, um, Iraqis are. I think it's safe to say way better than Americans at a more nuanced view of the world and, and politics. So I have countless Iraqi friends, countless Iraqi sheikhs, religious leaders that I'm very tight and plugged in with who have told me the American soldier who put his boot on my neck, even though I was a completely innocent man with my little girl at the grocery store, is not necessarily representative of of his platoon. And even if the whole platoon Wow. Even if the whole platoon is like that, they're not necessarily representative of the entire US military in Iraq. And the US military in Iraq is not representative of the US military writ large. And the US military is not representative of the U, of the American people. So we should only hold the person who committed the sin against us guilty and not hold the American citizenry. They don't guilty paint with the same brush everybody because of this one person who rep- fast and where does that distinction come because we would say I mean, in America I hear I understand what you're saying that people would say like I met this one person in this country I'll tell you what that country's nuts and they would say no I met this one person and they were nuts but I have no idea the rest of the country or the other people they would just make that distinction what does that come from well I, I think I mean to be clear I think there are Iraqis who exhibit that same sure. extrapolating kind of thing that sure. we do but I think it comes from Islam. I mean, I, oh, fascinating! I, I think there's something. I couldn't ch- cite the verse, you know, but I, I think there's there's just something. I've I've seen it in enough places across enough countries now that I think there's something about Islam that teaches where it's practiced rightly to to think of those those ideas of indiv- somehow. I don't know if this is the right word, but something more like sin is individualized, not. Well, I was even thinking there's a, a dignity and honor to being a human being. So, we begin there. Hmm. Um, and this person may have done this, but let's, let's not rush to judgment about everybody else. Fascinating. Fascinating. Okay, I keep going back to ISIS. So, then there's something new brewing. There's something more vicious, more beheadings. How does ISIS enter into your consciousness other than just Al-Qaeda, only meaner, nastier, and more social media savvy? Do you know what I mean? How did, Yeah. Um, where do you first hear ISIS? In and around Fallujah. Oh, interesting. Um, when, I guess, there's a... Yeah, so I have a... a a guy who was a, a relatively good friend at the time, uh, who's still a friend. And we were, I, I wasn't there the day this happened, but he was in a, a, a good friend's of mine's house, a, a Muslim cleric. 
and there were some other Muslim clerics in the room and some tribal sheikhs in the room. And they called me later that day and said, you'll never believe what just happened. He just stood up in the middle of all these guys who are twice his age, his elders, and he offended all of them by saying, yeah, well, at least ISIS protects us and at least they're on our side. At least they're not part of the Shia Maliki regime that is oppressing half of our country, meaning the Sunnis. And it, it became clear over the next couple of days and weeks that, that his brother had been pretty well integrated with the Islamic State of Iraq before it fully metastasized into Syria. And he was starting to speak some rhetoric that implied that maybe he was aligned with them as well. I'd heard of them, but that's when it hit home. Because um, this was new. Yeah, I mean, because... A new edge, a new anger, a new defiance. And something like, I mean, and I, like, Al-Qaeda was also still a thing. The Islamic State of Iraq was a, a, a relative, but a different thing mm-hmm. as well. But that's where I remember hearing of the Islamic State of Iraq for the first time, was when my friend was now suddenly caught up in it. And have you been in ISIS-controlled areas? We have been in ISIS-affected areas, for sure. Um, our team, our, our Preemptive Love Coalition teams have been in ISIS. Preemptive Love Coalition? Oh, I love, that is the best name. Preemptive Love Coalition. That is fantastic. Um, has been, you've, and I remember you telling me a story about a, um, the man with the loaf of bread or the car. Yeah, so that's... Yeah, so over the summer, um, the Prime Minister's office reached out to um, a, a group of us and asked, he pointed to this town in the middle of the Anbar Desert, surrounded by ISIS on three sides, and said, if ISIS gets control of this one last road, the town will be completely cut off from all food, all access to the outside world. It will be yet another town that falls to ISIS, and it will be a huge blow to morale for Sunnis everywhere. It will be a huge boon for ISIS. We have to save this one little town from falling, and I want you guys to help. And so he set aside a C-130 cargo plane for us, asked us to provide 15 tons of food aid for the town. We got a couple of friends to raise the money pretty quickly. And you found 15 tons of food uh in the local bazaar i mean just shopped where any major um Whoa. wholesale any grocery store yeah. might shop or, yeah. or restaurateur might shop and so it was it was like huge bags of flour huge bags of rice tea those kinds of things and the prime minister's office matched us with another 15 tons of food so we put 30 tons of food on this cargo jet flew it over isis controlled territory which were you in the plane? I was not. Yeah. I tried so hard to be in the plane, and the, the days kept getting delayed. Um, and I ended up having another conflicting date, and so I missed I missed getting to be a part of it. But I badly, badly wanted to be there with them. And so the rest of the team ended up going on without me. And, I mean, by this point, ISIS has RPGs and, and surface-to-air missiles and things like that. So flying over ISIS-controlled territory in a very lumbering, large target mm-hmm. cargo plane is no small risk. And they sat down in the Anbar Desert to help this one little town called Haditha. Now, incidentally, Haditha has been, it's a major byword in, uh, Americans are a major byword in Haditha due to this massive 
massacre that took place at American hands in Haditha in the middle of the war. So Americans are not much beloved in Haditha up until this point. And um, so set down the cargo plane and the prime minister deploys the Iraqi 7th and 10th Army Division to help us get this food into the city. And on the way in, flanked on both sides by these armored divisions, we take our teams take sniper fire from ISIS, and they end up in a 45-minute shootout with ISIS right over the horizon. Finally get the food into the town, and the people are just starving. Uh, and we meet this one guy who had just a couple of days before sold his car for two bags of flour just so he could feed his kids some bread because they were, I mean, completely starving. Now, it would be hard for any of us to sell our car for a mere two bags of flour. But when you're surrounded by ISIS, your car is so much more than like your ticket to the grocery store. It's it's your getaway vehicle. I mean, at this point, we're a year into this conflict with ISIS, and we've seen so many people flee their homelands in their car, cram two or three families inside a small sedan, only to show up at a checkpoint and not let the other side let them in. So if you're Sunni, then the Kurds won't let you in, or the Shia won't let you in, or vice versa. And and so your car ends up becoming your your hotel for the night. Mm-hmm. And then that one night can turn into three months and your car is now your your castle, you know? And so this guy sold his castle for two bags of flour for his kids to get a couple pieces of bread. And you've seen you've seen and heard stories like this probably countless times. Yeah, all over Iraq and it's way worse in Syria right now. Have you been in Syria? It's on the it's on the the rope the moon goal list for 2016. We're trying to actively figure out how we can do a lot more in Syria this year. And, uh, uh, I'm, I don't know what to say. Do you, you can get in a car and drive around most of Iraq now? Uh, there are still significant parts of Western Iraq that are controlled by ISIS that, which most of Western Iraq is desert. Um, so that effectively means they control the roads and, um, you can go so far and then it starts getting a little precarious as to whether you would, whether there would be any wisdom in going much further. You know? So, so you, you could take all of, all of us, you could take us and show us around Iraq and you would just say, we can go down this road. We can't go down this road. You have a sense of the geography of the whole country where it's okay, where it's not. Are you asking if you can come hang out with us in Iraq? <laughs> I've actually been absolutely fascinated with Iraq for a long time. Now. You should come. I just find it. I just, everything I can read, everything, pictures, I just find it absolutely fascinating. It is fascinating. It's a gorgeous, beautiful people, first and foremost, and then, you know, the place in which they live is is equally beautiful in its own ways. The desert is beautiful and terrifying. The marshes and the swamplands in the south are fascinating. The, the things that they create out of these reeds uh, that that grow in the swamps, they create these palaces out of reeds and it's just gorgeous gorgeous beautiful craftsmanship and then the mountains in the north that are uh, typically populated by Kurds are are beautiful in their own way so it's a where, cool place where did you grow up Denver and Austin Texas what, it was there some clue in your upbringing that you would be driving around Iraq you know, I mean, what? How were you raised? Yeah. So, did, you, did some parent? I mean, did your parents say you should go serve the world, or did you know? Sometimes people you can sort of look back on their story, 
and see the seeds of what they've become. Yeah, definitely. Um, I definitely have the seeds in my family. I don't think anyone imagined it would play out like this, but my grandfather's a pastor. And oh, interesting. My father has pretty much been in a similar vein of professional church ministry um, many, many years at my grandfather's side. And I think there was a there was probably even a sense that I would kind of follow in the family footsteps and, and join up in that clergy type way. But where I think the real seeds are were when my grandfather would bring like a, a traditional missionary uh, in mm-hmm. on a Sunday night to do a slide presentation mm-hmm. and uh, talk about the people. And so I was exposed to many, many cultures, um, fascinating places you know we traveled the world every sunday night when some missionary friend would come in and do a presentation to the church and then afterwards we'd always go back to my grandfather's house and have some kind of leftover dinner with the missionaries and so i think somewhere running around as a four-year-old and a eight-year-old and a 15-year-old that just got into me it's got to be part of my story somehow it's 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 yeah. got to have compelled me toward right this. there's a big world out there there's lots of needs when you and jessica got married you're like oh by the way if you marry me you gotta understand we could have babies and live in our i mean did you were you like you gotta understand i'm gonna go i'm gonna live large or i'm gonna you know did you have some sort of big sort of <laughs> live large i can't believe i just said that but you know what i mean did you have some like slightly corny but totally heartfelt I'm going to do this. You got, are you with me or not, babe? Or were you? Definitely. Definitely. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Actually, I'm, we're sitting here laughing because yes, I mean, it was exactly like that, but not, we, you know, thankfully for the sake of our marriage, we made sure to iron that out very early on, not on the wedding day, but um, it was like, in, before we even started dating, that was sort of the fork in the road. You know, this is where I think I'm headed. And I, that that either needs to be okay or we need to not so ever pursue this dating I love, thing. So you never had like, well, I can get out of work by 520 if I get the reports oh done. We word. could be at that Applebee's by 6. I would die. There's a sale at Home Depot. I'd like to get some wood chips for Saturday morning. And then hopefully maybe we could go to my parents' cottage and take the pontoon boat. Like you just didn't have like a... And I think about getting a new Honda. It's not a bad way to live. I don't right, right. think. Yeah. I, it's just I would suffocate. You just, <laughs> I love it. I, um, and I assume if you were in like raised in a church setting where there was a Sunday night missionary, your view of the divine finding yourself in this like melting pot essentially of all these different strands and views and the clash of East and West and America and Iraq and Islam and all whatever. I mean, I I assume that you have had it multiple times, whatever you were handed had to kind of break apart for something bigger to take place within you. Yeah, for sure. And, and it's happened on so many levels. I mean, it's happened um, I, I've had many conversions, you know. Oh, well and said. I, I inherited a very egoistic kind of faith. It was God is about me and my well-being, and I didn't really have much of a greater awareness of the rest of the world. And I, I guess that probably suited me well when I was young and a child and needed 
yeah. needed some sense of place and security sure. in the world. And you have to have an ego to die to one. And then I, I think the major one of the major undoings that happened in college was was waking up to this fact that if this if this God, this sovereign, this divine, this spirit is really real and active and alive in the world, then how could it possibly just be about me? This has to actually be something big enough to be for everybody, even for Osama bin Laden and a bunch of Muslims who flew airplanes into our buildings mm. on 9-11. Somehow they have to be wrapped up in this same thing that we claim to be wrapped up in. And whatever this message is that is for me has to be good news for them also, or it, or it's not real. So that kind of waking up to the rest of the world was a major conversion point. Um, I think wait, the other side of that ego type conversation was moving beyond myself to just life and community and and realizing that this thing only works when we're vulnerable and let other people in. And the kind of church model that I had didn't really let other people in. It was programmatic. It was you go, you sit, you fake it, and you leave and don't dare be vulnerable. So I think this this whole experiment or trajectory we went through in terms of like daring to let a few other people deeply into your life was revolutionary in a lot of ways and then and then I had to come to terms with Christianity itself in some ways and and the the disjunct claims that didn't make sense for me now living among Muslims whose faith was extremely vibrant and consonant with a lot of what I think we believe, believed, my community back home even believed, but somehow I'm facing it here, and they were supposed to be the enemy, and they were supposed to be utterly different, and I find that we're actually very concentric in so many ways, and we're in this dance, and they keep trying to say, hey, can't we just keep dancing because we're in this together, and I find myself with my fists up saying, no, I'm I'm supposed to punch you in the face right now and like uh. we're, we're so different like this has to be a fight. This has to be antagonistic. I have to be utterly different than you. We can't be in a dance together because that would be like I approve of you somehow and I can't approve of you. I don't I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, and and yet every bone in your body is like if there is a Christ, if Jesus was about anything, it is about this is my neighbor, this is my brother, this is my sister. We are humans. And our common humanity trumps whatever divides us. That's extraordinary. That's extraordinary. There must be something that unites us more than all the ways we've cooked up to divide ourselves. And that's where this idea of preemptive love is so I was so just going to say. Powerful. It's, it's Preemptive love coalition. It's what is ignited my soul and kept me going through all this it's amazing for me it's just been a new way to put fresh words on this jesus story that that this being who is utterly other completely Mm -hmm. set apart Mm -hmm. dares to enter into the mix and love the people who are his enemies even to the point of laying down his life for these enemies and the whole claim of the whole thing isn't to create merely some new tribe called Christians, but to reconcile all things. Yes. 
yeah. to make all things new. Yeah. And I, I think I settled for a really lame version of the story. I, I settled for... And now you're living a new, better version. There's a great line in the New Testament about a new humanity. Like when humans wake up to our shared common bonds as humans. Uh, and you're doing that. It's extraordinary. How can people... How can people get a hold of you? How can people... I assume we can all donate. You can, all of you. Five bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks. We can help. And and you use that to get around Iraq, water, microfinance, medical. Get, get this. There's this kid, uh, Hussein, that I got an email about him yesterday. Uh, he was He's one of these many Iraqi kids who was born with a life-threatening heart defect. And he, because of the situation in Iraq right now, one of the common tropes still is that even though we've been training a lot of Iraqi doctors and nurses is that there's there's no way for him to get surgery inside Iraq and so he's had this kind of what I can only guess is like a predatory group come and offer him help to get outside the country for surgery and he is like his family is reached out to us and said that they have to raise $147,000 to get him heart surgery in some western country and so they were like, do you know of any other solution? And it was like, well, actually we do. Like this is one of the things that we do. And so we're trying to get another one of our expert surgery teams back into Iraq to help this little kid Hussein for free so that his family doesn't have to pay $147,000 to go to like Australia for a heart surgery. So that would be one thing that everyone could help us with. Help Hussein not go to Australia for surgery. Help him get surgery at home in his own neighborhood. Uh, amazing. How do people, uh, what's the web, there's a website? How do people? Preemptivelove.org. Preemptivelove.org. Um, I'm, I just, I'm cheering you on. I'm just so moved. Thanks. And I, it's really important to me with the Robcast that stories like yours get told and people see a bigger view of the world and have their hearts broken and all the, right kinds of ways <laughs> um but i would love for my people to get behind you and it's extraordinary and you and your young family so unbelievably inspiring and i'm all angry and churned up and inspired and all at the same time you know what i mean yeah we live in that daily like you live in we're that daily a, we're a really angsty happy people well, I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> you are seeing some of the greatest injustice and oppression and violence human beings can inflict upon each other. So it's almost like you have to move to a non-dual awareness. Hmm. If you're just right and like, you have to be able to hold all of this awful and then all of this good all at the same time in tension. Because we're constantly working with the bad guys. If you want to think of people in white hats yeah. and black yeah. hats, then... We are constantly working with the so-called black hats to do good things. Right. And for their part, they see us as black hats sometimes, and they have, to, they have to dare to let us in the door. Yeah. There's no white hats and black hats in most cases. In situations like this, especially the protracted ones, everyone ends up with being, blood on their hands. being guilty. Yeah, yeah. We got 20, <sighs> one of the things, we got 20,000 kids back in school this year in Iraq that ISIS had displaced from their regular school day and school place. We helped 20,000 kids back in school by working with the man who was once on the cover of Time magazine as the most wanted man in all of Iraq. 
that's a good thing to get 20,000 kids back in school by daring to work with a guy on the U.S. terror list. Yeah. Um, well, amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Really, really, really powerful. I'm going to be thinking about this one for a long time. And at some point, we'll have to have another one of these conversations. And But let's do it from Iraq, live from Iraq. Good Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, he's putting me on the spot. On purpose. I would love that. Good. Yeah, that's a very good move. <laughs> that was a very wise. You got me. Okay. <laughs> Amazing. I would love that. Thank you. Thank you. Grace and peace, everyone.